Good morning, church. We'll be reading Isaiah chapter 14, all of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 14, the entire chapter. Can everybody hear me from the back? Okay, can, can everybody understand me? <laughs> Let's stand for the reading, yes. God's word says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel will possess the nations as men's servants and maid servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their, their oppressors. On the day of the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you take up this taunt against the king of, of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fear has, has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and fury, subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are, are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exalt over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no woodsman comes to, comes to cut us down. The grave below is all Esther to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who are leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings over the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you, you also have become weak as we are. We have become, you have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread, are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to earth. You have once laid low to the nations. You said, to your, you said in your heart, I will, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of, uh, on, on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights, heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depth of the pit. Those who see you, those who, those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the thrones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in battle. But you have destroyed your land and killed your people, the offspring of the wicked, 
will never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his sons for the sins of their forefathers. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I'll rise up again, I'll, I'll, I'll rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I'll cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into a swampland. I'll sweep her with a broom of destruction, de declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be, will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? The oracle, this oracle came into the, in the year of King, A, King Ahaz. This oracle came in the year King, King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all your Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of this snake, you will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darling venomous serpent, a darling venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root will destroy, will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. Wail, O gate, how, O city. Melt away all your Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is, an, and there is not a uh, straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of the nation? The Lord has established Zion, and in her, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. Amen. In your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Once again, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, before you and before your word, I am a weak vessel. Before you and before your word, we are but worms. We are nobodies. But God, you call us together to hear your word and to study your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would take me out of the way. I pray that your message would come forth. 
calm my nerves and open our hearts. Pray this in your name. In 1963, Aaron Kushner was born. At three years old, he was diagnosed with a degenerative disease that guaranteed his death in his teenage years. His father, Harold, was a young rabbi at the time. Rabbi Harold Kushner could not understand why such a terrible tragedy would come into his life. He believed that he was a good person. Was God punishing him for something he had done? If so, why would God cruelly take out his punishment on his son? At the age of 14, Aaron died. And his father published a book four years later called When Bad Things Happen to Good People in 1981. His book became an international bestseller. As he explores the, the struggles, um, as he explores, excuse me, as he explores and struggles through the topic of the of suffering and evil in the world, he comes to an alarming conclusion. He does not conclude that God does not exist, nor does he try to defend God and His ways. Instead, he concludes that God is just not powerful enough. To him, we live in a random and cruel world, and there's just nothing God can do to stop it. In effect, he jettisons, gets rid of the authority of Scripture and the omnipotence and sovereignty of God in favor of a God who is unable to fix the problems of the world, but does offer aid to people, to the people, uh, through the people around us. Many of us like Rabbi Kushner, have experienced evil in the world, some to a different degree than others. You faced ridicule or slander from your community or from your coworkers. You struggled with depression. You were abandoned by a spouse. You lost your parents when you were young. You have survived or are currently enduring cancers of various sorts. You've lost children and spouses to suicide, illness, or even accidents. You've been beaten by a spouse. You've been abused by some wicked man. I can imagine that, like Rabbi Kushner... You've wondered where God was in all of this. Is he really good? Is he really sovereign and omnipotent, omniscient? Does he know everything? Does he really understand? Does he really love me? How could he possibly allow these kinds of things to happen? I must admit that the problem of evil asks many more questions than we could possibly answer in one sermon. Nevertheless, our text gives us several comforting truths to help, us answer, to help us answer yes to the question, can I trust God? Above all, we find in Scripture that we have a covenant-keeping God. When God makes a promise, we can rest assured 
that he will fulfill that promise. Some promises, like many in the Proverbs, may not be fulfilled this side of heaven, but rest assured, all God's promises will be fulfilled ultimately. Genesis 15, God inaugurates the covenant that he made with Abraham, assuring Abraham that he would absolutely fulfill his promise. This morning, the first thing we see in our passage is that we can trust God because he is sovereign. We can trust God because he is sovereign. Can you imagine how Abraham felt at this point? Imagine marrying the love of your life, building a life together only to find that she cannot have children. I imagine that like most marriages, they probably begin to blame one another. Eventually they may have shaken a finger at God, asking how he could possibly allow this to happen to them. Or maybe he had concluded his childlessness was some sort of punishment for some sin in their lives. But at 75 years old, God promised that they would have a child. See that in Genesis chapter 12. Can you blame him for being a bit skeptical? Still, several more years later, and God had still not given him a child. Lot is no longer around to take up the mantle. Abraham knows that he is likely to die too, and so he has already made plans for his imminent death. He's a very worthy servant who he has entrusted to inherit his wealth after he dies. Finally, after some time, God shows up again. Here's where we are in Genesis 15. Let's read verses 1 through 5 to start off. Because after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, that is God, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring Now pause there for a second. Pay attention to what's going on here. First of all, we see in the beginning of this passage that the text begins to describe Abraham as a prophet. In the previous chapter, in chapter 14, we see Abraham going up against kings to save his nephew from the hands of these enemies. So we see Abraham pronounced, as it were, as a king. Here we have him described as a prophet. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we, when the prophets speak, it says, the word of the Lord came to them, and sometimes it was in a vision, just as it was here for Abraham. So Abraham begins this 
prophetic ministry. And we'll see later on in the passage that uh, in, in, um, in verses 13 and 14, the, one of the prophecies that God gives to Abraham is that his people would be enslaved in bondage. In verse 13 and 14, look at this real quick. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with a great possession. Well, that's a pretty interesting prophecy, isn't it? It's a bit specific. Now, in Deuteronomy, it's explained. How can you tell if a prophet is true or not? By whether or not the things they say come true. So here we have Abraham being described as a prophet. Think of the original readers. The original readers of the people of Israel who had just been free from bondage in Egypt. And then they see here, Abraham said this would happen in this exact way. And as Moses describes in Deuteronomy, then Abraham is a true prophet. Because what he prophesied took place. It came from the Lord as the text describes it. Israelites see here then that Abraham is indeed a true prophet. And they can trust the things that we see and learn from his life. Similarly, between 15.5 and chapter 13 verse 16, we see that God's promise has not changed. In chapter 13 verse 16, God says, number the sand of the sea. And that's how many offspring you're going to have. And now he takes and says, number all the stars. And that's how many offspring you're going to have. <coughs> we dealt with this a little bit on Wednesday. I looked up on Google. Scientists estimate, astronomers estimate, that there are, in just our own galaxy, that there's approximately at least 1,000 million stars. Or is it 1,000 trillion? 1,000 trillion stars. A lot. <laughs> right? Whatever that number is, that's just our galaxy. And we know that there are far more stars outside our galaxy. And God says, can you count those stars? Of course you can. Right? Even the best astronomers don't have any exact numbers for us. Of course you can't number them. God says, that's how many children you're going to have. Your own offspring. Not Eliezer's. Not Lot's. Your own offspring. Before we get too far into, the, into looking at this promise, we see this promise is reiterated. God brings it up twice. And it's actually probably the third or fourth time God's bringing it up. He had already promised in Genesis 12 that he would give him a seed. Right? And then he says that seed is going to be more than the sands of the sea. Now he says that seed is going to be greater than all of the stars of the heavens. But let's take a look. Let's step back for a second. Think about where we know Abraham is at. Where we have to imagine he is spiritually and emotionally. God had made this promise and it still hasn't come about. He's been going through this for his entire life, his entire marriage. Dealing with childlessness and suffering through that affliction. But look how Abraham addresses God in verse 2. Says, he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house, as Eliezer of Damascus. He starts off the address, O Lord God. Well, that might seem like a 
you know, probably not a, a, a really important detail. Except for the fact that in verse 8, he addresses God the exact same way. Oh, Lord God. Further, these two instances in Genesis 15 is the only times in the entire book of Genesis that God is addressed with this phrase. Lord God. This Hebrew phrase is what we might say. So understand if you're Hebrew scholars, language guys like this guy over here. Is going to probably want to critique me for this. No, this one right here. This guy, Albert, right here. He's going to want to critique me on this, but um, this is the Hebrew phrase, Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. These two words that are used to address God, usually separately in Genesis. It's either Adonai, which is often translated God, and Yahweh, which is translated capital L-O-R-D, capital Lord. Adonai Yahweh. This strange, putting these two things together, I can go into some more detail, I'm not going to bore you with those details of why it's really strange as those two are together. If you were to pronounce this, if, a, if somebody reading the Hebrew text was to read this out loud, this is how they would read it. Adonai, Adonai. Okay? This is why it comes, it comes out a little bit more striking. Uh, it's two different words, but the, but the way they pronounce Yahweh, because it was the unspeakable name of God, they usually pronounce that word as Adonai. Gordon Wenham, one, one uh, Genesis scholar suggests, and I agree with him, that this phrase is best understood as sovereign Lord. This repetition of titles, what it's his, this idea is the word Adonai should be understood as being sovereign. He is my Lord, my sovereign Lord. What Abraham essentially says in this verse is, God, you are in control of everything. You are in charge. You promised me a child, and I'm still and I'm still childless. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? You say that you're in charge. I believe that. Sure, whatever. But I still don't have a kid. What's going on? We may ask ourselves the same questions when things happen to us. Unlike Rabbi Kushner. Abraham fully understood that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is one of the reasons that in verse 6 we find that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is an easy thing to say, but it is far more difficult to live out. Especially when terrible things happen in our lives. So let us begin by affirming that scripture teaches that God is sovereign. You've endured suffering. I'm sure you, like Abraham, might have, like Rabbi Kushner did, struggled with this idea. Since Abraham called God sovereign, let's unpack what Scripture says about the sovereignty of God. Let's begin by affirming that Scripture teaches that God is sovereign, or that word means that God is in complete control of everything. God is in completely in control of everything. And we'll see how difficult that is to think of here in just a minute. But for now, let's go to Scripture. God is before all things. He existed before anything else existed. In Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God also produced 
all things. Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God also sustains all things. Colossians chapter 117, the very next verse, says this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God also transcends all things. That means he is above and beyond all things. Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Psalm chapter 97, verse 9 says, For you, Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Scripture also tells us that God knows all things. In Psalm chapter 147, verse 5, it says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. In Isaiah chapter 46, and verse 10, it says, I make known the end from the beginning. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We also know from Scripture that God can do all things that are consistent with his nature. None of this can God make can God microwave a burrito so hot that even he can't touch it. Right? It would be contrary to his nature to be able to do something like that. Right? None of those kind of ridiculous questions. God can do all things that are consistent with his nature. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Jeremiah 32, verse 27, says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Further scripture teaches us that God owns all things. All things belong to God. Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. We also see that God rules over all things. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12 says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Scripture is clear, is it not? That God is sovereign in any way we can imagine. So what does that have to do with us? Well, let's continue to see what Scripture says. How does this sovereignty impact me? Well, God is in control of all things, including human decisions. Job chapter 42 and verse 2. The suffering Job turns to God and says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 135 and verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all their depths. 
Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. The scripture teaches that God is in complete control of all things and works all things out for his glory. Everything. Without qualification. When it comes to our own suffering, there's one more truth that we need to know. It is that God hates sin. God hates sin. It's a tough passage. We have this truism in our society that, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And yes, God offers a salvation to all sinners, but look at what Psalm chapter 11 and verse 5 says. The Lord, is, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. Not God hates wickedness and God hates violence. God hates the wicked and the one, the person who does violence. To try to separate a person's sin from who they are is ridiculous. So that person did something evil, but they're not evil. God loves that person, but not their sin disagrees with Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. God hates wickedness. God hates sin. He also despises the sinner. Even through that, he still offers salvation. Put a pin in that for right now. We must understand You need to know, if you've gone through suffering, you need to know that when that man abused you, you have to know that God hates what happened to you. He hates the sin that was committed against you. And he hates the person who committed that sin against you. That person misused their God-given free will. To act harmfully towards you. And secondly, we must also remember not only that God hates the sin, but we also must remember, along with what we already saw, that God will work all things out for his good, even when we don't understand it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. With the glory that is to be revealed to us. As 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient and the things that are unseen are eternal. God hates sin. He hates the wickedness, the suffering that was brought into your life. And the person who caused that, but he also is sovereign. And he will work all things out for his good. The problem then is mainly on our end, not on God's end. We may not see how 
God works our suffering out for his glory in this life. We see now it through a glass darkly, but then face to face, Scripture says. I also know that this short explanation will produce far more questions than it does answers. Please know that if you need to talk, I would gladly sit with you as long as is needed. But at this point, you can rest, knowing that whatever happened in your life is not meaningless. God is a good God. God is a sovereign God. God is a holy God. God is a glorious God. He does hate sin. He alone is holy. Let's think through this a little bit more personally then. On our own, we can never stand before him because of his holiness. None of us can call ourselves blameless. Psalm chapter 14 and Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. Righteousness is required in order to be reconciled to God. If we are to stand before God's holiness, if, the, if to be even qualified to do that, we have to be righteous. Then how on earth can anyone be saved? How on earth is there hope for anyone? This brings us to our second point about why we can trust God. Not only can we trust God because he is sovereign, but secondly, we see in Genesis 15, we can trust God because he provides imputed righteousness. It's a big word, and we'll unpack that here in just a second. The Pentateuch is essentially a dual biography of Abraham and Moses. Genesis deals with Abraham and his offspring, and the, the rest deals with Moses. Abraham, not having the law, is counted righteous. How? Let's look at verse 6. It says, And he believed the Lord, that is, he had faith in the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Moses directs his readers to see that in Abraham, the proper way to be right with God through righteousness which comes by is through righteousness which comes by faith, not by righteousness which comes from the law. Paul picked up on this in several places in Romans chapter 4. Turn with me there if you want to, to Romans chapter 4. If I can get there. Romans chapter 4, speaking on this exact same passage in Genesis, says this. What then shall we say was gained for Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, if he was saved by being obedient to the Mosaic law, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's salvation did not come through obedience to the law, but by faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 30. We examined this passage several times as we walked through the book of Proverbs. Let's look at this again. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ, who became wisdom to us from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So 
so that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is 1 Corinthians 1 saying? It's telling us that wisdom comes from Christ. Righteousness comes from Christ. Sanctification comes from Christ. Redemption comes from Christ. These are all things outside of us. It is Christ's righteousness that makes us righteous before God. It is Christ's wisdom that makes us wise. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, a magnificent thing took place. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Our sin is put on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is put on us. Luther would call this alien righteousness. It is righteousness that is not our own. It doesn't belong to us, but it is given to us by the cross. And by our faith in the Lord. This is what happened to Abraham that day. He believed God. And his righteousness no longer stood before God. But it was the future righteousness of Christ. That was applied to him. And that's what saved Abraham. That's the same thing that saves us today. It is imputed righteousness. God is holy and God is righteous and there is no way we could stand before him on our own. Obedience to laws, obedience to rules, obedience to regulations will never save us. Only faith in Jesus Christ can save us. And that faith gives us Christ's righteousness covering up our own wickedness. When I stand before the Lord and he asks, what have you done? That you should come into my heaven. The only appropriate answer is I'm I'm nobody. I'm empty. Nothing good about me could possibly allow me to enter into your glory. Praise be the Lord, because of Christ, He looks at me and sees Christ's righteousness and says, when you stand before God, you can't tell him how good you are or how many times you went to church. These things will not impress God. Good works and regular fellowship with the body of Christ are necessary to the life of a believer, but they are not what saves the believer. Before a holy and righteous God, the only right, only the righteousness of the Son of God counts for anything. That is why salvation is possible. Outside righteousness was applied to Abraham. And that is the same righteousness that is applied to us when we trust Christ as our Savior. This is what Christ provides for us through the cross. All well and good. Right? Sure. Okay, Christ's righteousness is applied to us. That's how we get saved. We have another question that ends up coming up in the problem of evil that it still strikes us as difficult. God hates sin and hates sinners. So how is it possible that the Father can impute to us Christ's righteousness based on faith? It doesn't seem fair. That's 
completely unfair, right? I did nothing to receive God's righteousness. I did nothing to receive Christ's righteousness. How could God possibly be just? It's a great question. It would be unjust for God to allow sin to go unpunished. After all, we all innately want to see justice done, right? So to see just sin go unpunished will leave us empty. Many who suffer conclude that God is not just. Or worse, suffering causes us to believe that we are out of God's favor. This brings us to our third point from the text this morning. Not only is God sovereign, we can trust God because he is sovereign. We can trust God because he imputes righteousness to us. But third from our text this morning, we can trust God because he is the guarantee of our salvation. He himself is the guarantee of our salvation. Continuing on here, the rest of this chapter is an interesting description. Let's read it together and we'll walk through it a little bit. It says, he said to them, he said to him, this is God speaking back to Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, there it is again. How am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I going to know? How could I possibly know that I'll possess this land? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So where it gets interesting. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. It's kind of an odd passage, right? Abraham, go and get some animals, cut them in half, and go to sleep. What? what are you What's going on here? In the ancient world, when a covenant was made, say, say me and Albert were making a land trade, right? And I said, all right. We're going to make this covenant. You're going to own this land. I'm not going to come on it anymore. You're going to, it's all going to be yours. Let's go ahead and make sure that this, is, this deal is done and that nobody can break that. So what we do is we make a covenant with one another. Okay, to affirm that covenant, we would make a sacrifice, say a bull or something like that. We would cut it in half, split it apart, and then we would grab, now again, remember different cultures, so take care. Don't, don't get too weirded out by this. But they would grab hands together and walk through 
essentially symbolizing, if I break my end of the covenant, may that happen to me. May I be split in half like that cow was. Or if you break your end of the covenant, may you be split in half like that cow is. Abraham here makes a series of sacrifices. And if we would continue on in the, in the Pentateuch, all these sacrifices were appropriate sacrifices to the Lord. We saw Abraham described as a king in the, last, in the last chapter, as a prophet in the beginning of this one. And now here we see him as a priest. Does that sound familiar? Hebrews tells us that Christ is a prophet, priest, and king. Abraham shows us what Christ will be. But aside from that, God here then makes a covenant with Abraham. It's interesting here that Abraham performs this sacrifice and then he falls asleep. God causes him to fall asleep. God makes a promise to him. And then what happens? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass through the sacrifice. Now, without getting into the details of what does that mean, what does that look like, here's what I believe, here's what I believe Scripture is telling us what happened. God himself and God alone passed through that sacrifice. Say, Abraham, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen. This will be fulfilled. And I guarantee on my own authority, on my own reputation, that I will do this. Notice that Abraham doesn't pass through the sacrifice. Can Abraham do anything to break this? God essentially says, may I be split in half like this if I break my covenant with you. God takes that covenant alone on himself. Another doctrine of, of, the, of the scriptures called the atonement. In the atonement, this is what Christ has done for us. He has atoned for our sins. There's many theories through the, through the ages that have tried to describe what the transaction is that's going on here that is bringing the atonement, that brings our salvation. One famous one, um, it was, it was, it was uh, used throughout the Middle Ages, is, is what's called the ransom, ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. The idea that God buys us back from Satan that we are bound by Satan and God buys us back from Satan. Let me say for off, let's just clear the air here. That's a problematic view. If that's the case, then Satan has more authority than God does. Or at least has equal authority to God. And God has to do something to appease Satan. Alright, I'll send my son, he'll die, and that way you can do this. And then, if you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, this is what C.S. Lewis proposes. That a sacrifice must be made to appease the white witch... That's why Aslan sacrificed himself to appease the wrath, the wrath of the white witch so that he saved. Bad theology. It supposes then that God and Satan are on an equal level. This is problematic. So then, who is this transaction taking place? We saw the transaction that happens with us, right? That, that God, that Christ gives us his righteousness. But how does that solve the problem of God being just? How does that fix that problem? How does that make any sense? Here's what takes place. When Christ dies on the cross for our sin, the full, we said earlier that God hates sin and he hates the wicked. All of that wrath, this cup of wrath, as scripture describes it, that God has towards sin and towards sinners. Every drop is 
poured out upon the cross. Every drop. All of God's wrath against sin, all of God's wrath against sinners is poured out on Christ. Sin has been paid for. Justice has been done. It was meted out on the only one who didn't deserve it. The only one who could actually handle it, too. The suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the transaction that takes place then, the wrath on sin is not from Satan. The wrath on sin comes from God. God is the one who needed to be appeased. The Father is the one who needed to be appeased. So the Son takes on that sacrifice and appeases the wrath of the Father. Now pay attention to this. When you have faith in Christ, when you give your life to Jesus, when you have faith, the transaction that takes place is between the Son and the Father. The Son says, I died for that person. And appease your wrath that ought to be poured out on that person. The transaction is not, there's not just a transaction made of trading our righteousness for his righteousness. There's also a transaction of wrath that takes place from the Son to the, from the Father to the Son. And back and forth. There's a transaction made between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son that guarantees your salvation. Now think about that. If that's the nature of the atonement, can I jump up in the middle of that and say, oh, well, I messed up. I guess I need to, need, need to stop that now. Right? Can, can, is, it, is there any way I could do something to lose that salvation? No. Not a chance. This transaction is between holy God the Father and holy God the Son. There is no way that transaction can be broken. As Paul says, no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. That includes me. I cannot even pluck myself out of the father's hand. If that doesn't drive us to trust the Lord, I don't know what does. The wages of sin is paid for in full. Now we are eternally secure in Christ. This week, I know, as I said earlier, many people have faced trouble this week. This week, I faced personal suffering. I was also invited into the life of someone else facing far worse suffering. In the middle of these things, I found myself asking God, why? Why would you let these things happen? How, how could you possibly let such horrible things go on in your world? I wanted to shake my fist, claim that I did not deserve my own suffering. I wanted to cry out in disbelief that someone else would have to endure so much. When I have endured so little, comparatively. Rabbi Kushner jettisoned the sovereignty of God in order to maintain God's love and justice. As we saw this morning, we cannot do that. Scripture does not allow us to do that. We cannot jettison God's love or jettison um, God's sovereignty in order to maintain his love and, and, and his justice. All three must be there. Instead, God's sovereignty is 
one of the foundational reasons that we can trust God. If God is not in complete control, how could we trust him? Could we? He would be just as susceptible to the chaos as we would be. At one level, it's comforting to know that he knows, he cares, he's in control. It's comforting to know that he has control when we have so little control. We can trust God because he is sovereign. Not only trust God if we jettison his sovereignty. We can trust God because he is sovereign. We can also trust God because he provides salvation to us. Not by our works, but by the works of Christ. Not by our righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. That doesn't relieve you and strengthen your trust in God, I guess. I should guess. You've never experienced the grace found at the foot of the cross. I would urge you to come to repentance today. But third, we saw we can also trust God because he promises eternal security. That promise is not conditioned on our perfect obedience. God the Father and God the Son make that transaction, make that covenant between themselves. The Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, is the guarantee of our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit guarantee our salvation. It's not conditioned upon our perfect obedience, but on Christ's perfect obedience. We cannot lose our salvation, and that fact should drive us to love and serve such a gracious God all the more. close this morning. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you said, I've never experienced this transaction, this great exchange of Christ's righteousness for mine. I don't have any guarantee of my salvation. There's no eternal security for me. I'm standing over the edge of the fire. I have no hope. Come to Christ today. If you want to know how you can do that, please come to me and ask me. I'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus and that his righteousness is applied to you and that transaction between the Son and the Father is guaranteed. If you're here this morning and you've struggled, as I'm sure most of us have, with the question, can I trust God? Can I trust Him? If you struggle with that, I hope this morning you've received a couple of encouragements. God is sovereign. He has imputed righteousness to you if you are a believer. And He has guaranteed your salvation. Maybe this morning, in your seat or, or at these steps, you just need to pray to the Lord. And ask Him. To comfort you. Maybe you need to renew your trust in him. And say, Lord, I, I know. Just like Abraham said, sovereign God, how you are in control. How is it going to happen? And at the end of the day, I trust you. Whatever it is, I trust you. I know that you'll do it. I may not know how. I may not know why. I may never know until I come to, come to glory. I trust you. Either of those situations is you this morning. 
Use the time as God has allowed you to. Let's go into our invitation. Bob, do you mind praying for us real quick? Surprise them so we don't know how to always good. Go and do my play in piano. For our invitation, we didn't have some music. Are you okay with that? I've heard him do extended bring his piano playing. Of I am not a pianist. I know you're not. All the more reason that God can use him. All right. Let's go to the Lord and open up our invitation. Holy Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign. God, we do thank you that you do impute righteousness to us. You are. A good God. And God, we, we thank you that you are God. That sin has been paid for by Christ. Lord, my sin was crucified on the cross with Christ all those years ago. And the wrath that you had for my sin and my wickedness was poured out on Christ. And Lord, he fought me. He paid for my wickedness. And your wrath was appeased toward me. Lord, I can't imagine I couldn't imagine giving that kind of love and grace to any other person that you have given me. We thank you for it. God, I pray that we would respond as you would have us to respond this morning. In your name, amen.